The team at Weight Inclusive Innovators is going to Mexico City and you're invited. There's something magical about getting out of the day-to-day routine. It's even better when you pack your bags, hop on a flight, and land in a new city. From August 20th to 25th, join us as we settle into our apartments in the neighborhood of La Condesa, visit all the local coffee shops that Mexico City has to offer, and dedicate time to work on our businesses. This means a whole work week to brainstorm your business's future, set goals for the next year, and get caught up on all those admin tasks that keep getting pushed to the wayside. And you didn't think we'd be all work and no play, did you? Well, our primary goal is to dedicate time to work on the biz and give ourselves space to dream and scheme. We can't go to Mexico City and not experience the vibrant culture that it has to offer. That's why we've planned a night of salsa lessons at Mamba Roomba and a cooking class from local culinary experts. Early bird registration is now open for our Mexico City trip. Spots are limited and you do not want to miss out on this amazing opportunity. Come hang out with us, work on your Spanish, and work on your business in person in Morgan's favorite city. Head on over to weightinclusiveinnovators.com slash Mexico City 2023 to sign up or click the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Weight Inclusive Innovators podcast. My name's Hannah Turnbull. And I'm Morgan Sinclair. We're two non-diet dietitians, entrepreneurs, and Enneagram 7s here to talk shop about the business side of things. From managing a team of clinicians to building a cohesive brand to figuring out how the heck to pay yourself, we get deep down in it, talking about what it actually takes to start, run, and grow your weight-inclusive business, the good and the messy. We know your degree didn't include any business classes, at least not any applicable to what you're doing now as an entrepreneur. This is why we're on a mission to bring business education to other weight-inclusive clinicians. Say sayonara to all the hours spent on Google and hello to information that is actually relevant. Let's dive into today's episode. Welcome back to the Weight Inclusive Innovators podcast. Today, I'm going to be in the hot seat a little bit talking about, is it time to hire your first clinician and become a group practice? And growth can be so exciting. We are giving big cheers to dietitians and other clinicians in the weight inclusive space who are providing this care. And so we know you have that down. That's awesome. And I want to empower you to figure out some logistics if you're ready to kind of grow your scope of what your practice can offer, aka more clients, more opportunities for clinicians, all that good stuff that comes with going from solo to group. But before we dive into today's episode, as always, we're going to do a little check-in with Morgan. Hey, Morgan. Hi, Hannah. Tell us about your business highs and lows this week. My business high this week, and I talked about it last week on last week's podcast episode, but for those who are not caught up, I am launching a website template shop. And this was, it's something I've been wanting to do for a while. Purchased a course in November, didn't really do anything with it. Lost my contract roles, pretty much gained 40 hours a month back and have dedicated all of that time into launching a template shop over the last couple of weeks. And it is like so close to be launched. Like I'm starting with beta testers next week and I have six, maybe seven beta testers. And when I went into this, I was like, three would be great. Incredible. And so it just feels so good for things to be like up and running. There's still a few like logistic things that I need to figure out. Like I use Podia to sell lessons already. And so like, do I want to integrate it into there or do I want to switch over to Shopify because the Shopify purchase flow is much more easily integrated into my website. 
but okay. it is an additional business cost. And so I'm like weighing those options. I have a question. Sure. How, how much is Podia? Cause I know how much Shopify is. Podia is, oh gosh, they just increased their prices 39 a month. Okay. So you would have to pay that still while also using Shopify or would you? Yes. Because, well, no, I'd keep things on Podia because that's where all of the weight inclusive business Academy lessons are. And it just doesn't make sense to have like separate accounts for like that with. And so I was like, what if I just started on Podia? And if I ever, and I'm so familiar with Shopify that if I ever wanted to switch, I could, it'd probably be like a little bit of a pain in the ass, but I also part of doing beta testing is getting their feedback on how all of the content is delivered to them. And so if people are like, this was confusing, it didn't make a lot of sense, things like that, then I'll know I'll switch over to Shopify and that'll be that. Awesome. But that was kind of my like existential work crisis yesterday because I'm like ready to move forward with putting the digital downloads up on the internet. And I was like, what do I use? Oh gosh. That's such a big question. Cause it goes back to a systems thing. Oh, and yeah. I know your grounded self knows like you can always change it, right. but it still does feel like ripping the bandaid off to pick mm-hmm. one. Yes. Um, one thing I always do in those decisions, especially if it's around money and paying an extra expense for something to be more efficient is I add up that expense for a year and see how I feel about committing to that. And then if that is a bust, like, mm. is that going to feel detrimental? And that always helps me. So when I hear you say $40 a month for a year, I'm like, okay, that's about 500 bucks. If I quote unquote at minimum lose $500 and lose a lesson, am I, or learn a lesson, am I okay with that? And that thought process kind of helps me. That's a really good thought process. I'll have to think on that. You gave me something to think about this weekend before I decide to officially launch next week. Beautiful. (laughs) My uh, low this week is that I felt kind of directional. Um, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I got stuff done this week. Like it was a good week. I worked on some client projects. I did template work. But last week there was, I had so much focus that going into this week, I was like really hoping for that same amount of like focus and delegation and um, time blocking and all of that. And I just, I really could have benefited from looking at my ideal schedule a little bit more this week. And I just didn't. And so be it. It do be like that sometimes if the low is feeling directional because you have a lot of awesome things going on and you're excited and inspired, like that's pretty good low. (laughs) There could be be worse things. (laughs) Totally. could be worse things. What about you? What were your highs and lows this week? Oh my gosh. So here in Denver this week, we had the amazing Fiona Sutherland and Lisa Pearl duo um, here for a supervisor workshop. And so myself plus around 20 other dietitian supervisors went to a two-day training. It was in person. It was at this very cute old house called People House, which is a nice like community center in Denver. And it was just so full of inspiration and love and connection. And I just really didn't know how much I needed that. So um, I'm feeling very like reconnected to dietetics. You know, sometimes you and I talk about being in the business space. What we like about it is it's a break from emotional labor and it's very exciting and it's different. And we get to be the cheerleaders for people doing the work. And sometimes I know for me, I get very wrapped in the business stuff because I love it. And I forget how important this work is and how 
important it is to have community and how awesome eating disorder dietetics and weight inclusive care is. So it was just like a nice little reminder and got to see some awesome colleagues and I had so much FOMO seeing y'all together when that picture, <laughs> when y'all posted that picture on Instagram, I was like, some of my favorite people are all together and I'm not there, which like makes sense, right? Like I'm not a supervisor. I shouldn't be there. <laughs> I love that all of y'all got to hang out together and yeah, definitely a little jealous of that and jealous that y'all got to see Fiona. I feel like some of the people there, I was like, oh, it's a, you know, jump hop and skip away to get to other places in the U.S. and then getting to see Fiona who's all the way in Australia. Oh, yeah. It was an absolute delight. She is a delight. And also, so outside of the connection and the people, just the fact that I know Marcy Evans is part of this, this push as well of just normalizing supervisors in dietetics and giving them the skills to be effective. Mm -hmm. And the workshop was amazing. It was so well-structured. So as an entrepreneur and a business person and someone who is hosting retreats. You and I are hosting a retreat in Mexico city. I want to host some group practice stuff in the future. Um, it was just cool to see something so well done played out. So yeah. not only is the content good, but like the structure of the workshop and the inclusion and setting the stage, like chef's kiss. It was awesome. So I feel very inspired from that angle as well. But one thing that I was thinking about a lot, and I'll probably weave in here today is just about supervision and being a group practice owner and all that stuff. So going to put a pin in that for now, because it's another conversation for another day, but I feel very like, Hmm, what are we doing and why? And like, we can do this better, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm writing that high and I probably will for a few weeks. The other flip side of that. And part of my low is I am very tired. This is the first this is what two full days, right? The two workshop full days was. of eight hours. Yeah. Which we love. We love a jam-packed value-filled event, but I haven't done something like that in years. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm feeling very tired, very, I don't even want to say introverted because I don't feel that I'm just like, I don't have capacity for anything. And I'm a little bit overwhelmed because Mondays are my days where I'm usually orienting myself to the week and doing some project-based stuff. And we had a busy week at we, because we closed registration for accountability club. We're gearing up for the next round and then just running the group and people being all over the place. Cause the holidays next week. And I'm like, ah! so um, I'm a little behind on things. So if you're listening to this and you know me and you sent me an email the last two weeks, I'm very, very sorry. And I plan to catch up very, very soon. Love you. Bye. Um, that's where I'm at, but I'm also trying to not feed into the spiral of I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed. I'm just mm-hmm. going to deal. So I have a good chunk of time this afternoon to catch up on some stuff. Like I told you before we hit record, I am heading to Crested Butte tonight with my partner and the van and the doggos. And I'm going to work from the mountains a little bit tomorrow. And then just going to let the overwhelm roll off my body while I look at the beautiful wildflowers in nature. I love that. Are you taking Monday and Tuesday off next week? Neither of the days? Sure I'm not. All right. <laughs> I will I don't care about the fourth. I think it's a stupid holiday. Okay. I think fireworks are stupid. Um, fireworks are stupid. Yes. Oh my gosh. If you have dogs and you hear fireworks and you see what they go through, it's okay. very like that's dark. fair. Good highs and lows. Are you ready to dive in? Let's do it.
I am so excited to put you in the hot seat today because this is like your bread and butter, your realm. We get questions all the time, like even in the accountability club, and I'm not even a part of group practice. And so I can only imagine how many more questions you get. So I'm excited to be able to ask you some of those questions today and get some answers on is it time to hire your first clinician and switch over from solo practice to group practice? I'm excited about this too. And I'm excited that we're intentionally zooming in on one part of this because Mm -hmm. there are so many aspects of group practice. It's overwhelming at times. And that's one of the reasons why I love being a coach is I get to help people sift through that and help them prioritize what needs to happen first. I feel like that's kind of what we're doing here is like, let's, do the before, the before the hiring. Let's talk about if you're ready. Let's figure out like why you should do this. So let's get after it. As Hannah alluded to, more to come. This will be a little multi-part series breaking down the whole shebang of hiring your first additional RD. And today's part, we are focusing on getting you and your mindset right and kind of doing a little check to make sure that this is what you truly want. And it's not just one of those things where like you see everyone around you hiring, which Mm -hmm. I think we see a lot. And then you get into it and you're like, shit, I don't want to be someone's boss. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And then another caveat before we dive in as well is you're going to hear us say RD a lot. That's just a natural Mm -hmm. thing for Morgan and I, because we are RDs and we work with a lot of RDs, but I also coach therapists. I also coach nurse practitioners. I coach doctors. I have a whole gamut of different clinician types. And what's cool about talking on the group practice side is it's all applicable employer businessy type knowledge. So if you hear us say RD, just plug in therapist, nurse practitioner, doctor, chiropractor, whatever your kind of realm of practice is. Cool. Ready for your first question? Hit me. How do you know when you are ready to hire your first clinician? Okay. I want to really hit on the fact that you said when, when, so how do you know when you're ready to hire your first clinician? This is a very logistical, could be philosophical question. Um, the first thing I would say is how long have you been in practice? And I'm going to put a little asterisk there because for some, You could be in practice for two months and know that your plan from the start was going to be group practice and you needed to get the floor kind of set and you start things off. Um, Maybe this is your a more senior clinician who came from a treatment center or another job type and you have that entrepreneur spirit and you're like, okay, I'm going to be the first clinician technically, but I really want my first clinician to be the clinician establishing this group. Awesome. If you are, this is the, and this is my experience. I was a greener clinician going into private practice. I don't know if I highly recommend that. Um, And I was in solo for about a year and one to two years is the point where I tend to hear people kind of have that stirring of like, I feel like I'm really good at this. I feel like I got this. I'm getting good supervision. I have a full caseload. I'm feeling really good. And I would love to be able to send clients to somebody else and me still be able to have touching points with that client, even if I'm not giving the direct care. And I think that can be a good indicator of, I might be ready to hire somebody. Like logistically, you're full, 
you have more referrals coming in, you feel established as a clinician, you're not kind of all over the place, um, wondering if you're good at this, or you have the capability to potentially take somebody under your wing and supervise them. I would say another piece of when is making sure your shit is cleaned up. So if you're still doing paper charting um, and you are seeing bottlenecks with that, or if you are doing your own billing and you have a ton of outstanding claims and you're like, what the hell is going on? Anytime you add somebody else into that mix, that is going to increase the issue tenfold. And so figuring out what inefficiencies need to be addressed and what systems need to be put in place before starting any of this. And I say that so lightly as well, because some issues and systems are ongoing and tweaking. And I don't want people to go into the mindset of, oh my God, I have to have all of this before I do this. It's the same mindset as when this, then this happens and people will get stuck there too. Three years will go by and you won't hire anybody. So it really has to be that B plus good enough mentality to where you feel comfortable bringing somebody else into the mix. And then a ton of communication around like, we're still figuring this piece out and this piece out. You're my first employee or my first contractor. Like, awesome. We're going to be a little messy together. Is that okay? And so when you're ready, logistically comes down to time and practice, confidence as a clinician and business owner, systems being in place, anything I missed, what would you add? You have insight too. I think you nailed it. I feel like the thing that comes up the most is that one to two year mark is usually when the clinician has established themselves as a clinician, like a known clinician that they can refer to, has a full caseload. And people are like, well, I keep getting referrals. I don't, I will, if I have to send them to someone else, but I don't want to, I'd rather like keep them internally and want to hire and that tends to be the the conversation that I hear from most people whenever they're exploring if they're ready to hire another clinician. So that's when, that's the logistics. The other piece of this is like your practice may be ready, but how do you know if you should hire your first clinician? I think this question is far more important than the when. And you know, one of the reasons why I'm drawn to business and group practice and managing and, and leadership is a lot of the concrete stuff of like one to two years of experience, having a full caseload, being able to work systems and have marketing, blah, blah, blah. I really like that. But where my brain and my personal strengths tend to lie naturally is the philosophical existential stuff. Um, I'm definitely like a visionary dreamer, questioner, et cetera. So when you're thinking about if you should hire your first clinician, like we always talk about from our boy, Simon Sinek, it always comes to back to what is your why? Because if, again, if the why is like, I want to make a bunch of money and retire early and X, Y, Z, like, sure, you, you can do that, but you're going to be deeply deeply unsatisfied if there's not any part of you that feels you want to contribute to the greater good. You want to create a place for dietitians to work where they're treated well and taken care of, and they get to do meaningful work while in a supportive community, um, that clients have a place to come and use their insurance. And you know, there's a need like 
that if you should hire really comes back to that philosophical, what am I contributing to the world? What do I want to be doing? Why am I doing this? And having very one track blinders on of, I want to do this because this is what I'm supposed to do next, or because I am writing this story that this will solve this problem for me is not going to give you a good experience of group practice. I have a lot more thoughts, but I'm going to pause for a minute. I have been rumbling with this idea as someone who doesn't have a group practice, but whatever. I hear this and see this from folks. It is no denying that having a group practice, having another clinician in your practice that can see clients and bring revenue into the practice, like you're going to make more money as the business owner. Like there's, that's like point and blank. That's going to happen. I would love to hear your thoughts on this kind of as you've coached people around this. I think that can, that can be a motivator as long as there is parts of this other why that are there. Because I don't think someone would have a solo practice if they weren't in it for wanting to do the greater good type of work. And there is the added benefit of financial growth for the practice owner. And so I hear you of like the finance, financial piece can't be the only motivator and the like, this is just what's next mentality can't be the only motivator, but I think it can hold a small part of that motivation too. What do you think? Yeah. I'm glad you are like just naming this directly because we we're in the business space. We're entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are driven by money in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. It's like money meets our needs. Money allows us to do the things in life that we want to do. And that's okay. Money's a resource. Money is energy. Money is empowerment. And you will make more money in a group practice in certain stages. In some stages, you will not. Um, we kind of talk about the life cycle and the different levels of being a group practice owner, where when you're first hiring people, a lot of the time you're replacing your revenue to get your time back. And so what tends to happen in the beginning with the first few employees is you're hiring people, revenues going up, but like Ken talked to us about in previous episode where he kind of talked, told us about watching profit versus revenue, your profit's going to go down a bit because you're needing to still pay yourself and you're bringing in less revenue and you're also paying your team. And so There is a transitional period where you are making maybe the same amount that you made while you were in solo practice, but the business is no longer reliant on just you. So you're getting your time back. You're getting paid to do other responsibilities. Um, And some people stop there. And I think that's totally okay. And that's where it comes back to like, what is your value? Where do you feel like you're being compensated fairly for your exchange of labor? But to circle back to the original question around, is it okay to want to make more money and that to be part of having a group practice? Yes. You are taking on the responsibility of many other people. You're providing jobs. You're providing benefits, potentially. You are at the risk of everybody can just leave. Like that is the fact. It could burn down and you're left to clean up the mess. Um, There's a lot of different things that come up in group practice. Like I talked about on the podcast the other day having somebody barricade themselves into your suite, like at the end of the day, you're the one who deals with that. And so you need to be compensated well. You're taking on a ton of risk and responsibility. And so I don't, 
I think it's okay for group practice owners to be unapologetically confident in making a good amount of money. I think where the line comes in and people are always afraid of, and the people who are afraid of this, I'm not worried about, are the feeling of like, oh my God, I'm making more than my employees. Am I exploiting them? And the answer is no, that's how this works. It is hierarchical. And a lot of things are very objective of where you need to keep profit margins, what you should be paying yourself as the group practice owner, what your employees, contractors should be making and what is fair. And the group practice owner does make more. How bananas would it be to hear that your boss makes less than you? Yeah. That's martyrdom. Not here for that. Yeah. How are you to take care of yourself with all the responsibility and the stress and things you deal with if you're making less money than your team or breaking even? Like, no, absolutely not. In no other industry would that fly. Absolutely. And that's the beauty of group practice. And there's always going to be a tension of not only do we want to make more money, but our employees want to make, and I say employees right now, that's the terminology I'm used to. I know there's going to be people who do contractors, totally fill in whatever word makes sense to you. There's always going to be a tension of limitations in a group practice of people wanting to make more money and being capped out, especially if you're insurance-based. And even if you're private pay, because people are only willing to pay so much for our services. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if people want to make more money and they're at your group practice, like they will need to leave. And so group practices a great option for employees who want to make a reasonable salary, want to have flexibility and autonomy in their work, want to have a community and want to be supported and don't want to run the business. Like the group practice owner makes more because not only are they being the director or the founder or the whatever title you want to call yourself, we're also the business owner. Like we make this shit happen and we keep this. And what I keep thinking more and more, and I want to, as I'm thinking about maybe developing future offerings for group practice owners and courses and things one day. Um, (laughs) I want to talk about sustainability and ecosystems in group practice more and kind of have some nature-y metaphors because granola girly, because it's true. Like this needs to be a sustainable ecosystem that everybody has accountability in and everybody gets what's theirs in and what's fair. And what is fair is the group practice owner gets more. Makes all sense. I want to say one more point about the financial motivation piece, because I mean, you kind of hit on this too, Morgan, but if that's your sole reason of like, fuck, I need to make more money. You're going to be miserable doing this because the fulfilling parts of the group practice are also the stressful parts. So for example, managing people, the people are the ones who bring in more revenue to your group and you want to have the right people and really good people at your practice for it to feel good. Because if you don't, and it's shitty, then that's not worth any amount of money. I'm like, I will pay you to get these people off my team. Um, And I know group practices who are like that. And I feel really grateful that I have awesome people on my team and it's, that's what makes it so good. So you have to want to manage people. You have to um, be okay with conflict and giving people feedback and all of that comes at a cost. And so it's not as simple as let me hire this person And they'll bring in revenue. I get paid. They get paid. Yay. Like, no, there's a very real leadership connection, communication aspect that has to happen. Yeah. It's like the difference. And I I know you just touched on this, but the difference of like, there's a lot more responsibilities that you would have as the business owner, because you're not just like marketing yourself and filling your caseload. You're now in charge of doing that for other folks on your Mm -hmm. team. 100%. 
if you're going through this process of like, should I hire another clinician? Checking in on when you would be ready, validating if you're ready. Now we get to move into the how to prepare yourself as the owner to expand and things logistically and emotionally to look at before you actually put out an ask of like, hey, I'm hiring. Who wants to work for me? So we're going to have into this. Let's start with logistically. How would you recommend logistically preparing yourself as the owner for expansion of your practice? There's many logistics to look at. So I'm going to keep it kind of kind of tight. The first thing and the biggest question that I always get from people uh, is employees or contractors, right? Mm -hmm. And if you've been listening to the pod for a while, you know, I feel deeply strongly about the employment model um, versus contractors. I love having full-time people. I love the challenge of making sure we have enough clients to come into the practice and like get people full and keep them full. I love being able to offer other benefits outside of compensation. So at my practice, we offer half the insurance paid. We offer dental, vision, medical, short-term disability, which means it can cover parental leave. We cover a 401k with a 4% match. We do PTO and sick time. Like anything that we can offer our team, we do. Um, And we also have competitive pay and admin time. And part of doing that is I want people to be fully committed to nourished and to me and to the team and having a communal feeling company culture, being able to actually lead people and support them in the work they're doing. Like that is very much the employment model of having employee W2. The contractor side is if you are wanting to build a team of seasoned clinicians who don't want to run the business. They really just want to do the work, but they're very independent and they don't need anything from you. So independent contractor. And this is where you can do more of a model where people are under the umbrella of you. Maybe you're doing marketing, insurance, billing. Um, Maybe they're using your office, but outside of that, anything related to their work with clients should be housed under their business. That's under your business. And so for me, to be honest, I just don't understand the benefit of that for people, if they're already doing most of the businessy stuff, that's where I think there's a deficit in the contractor model. And what I actually see a lot in the field, and again, I think a lot of people just don't know, is a lot of people who have contractors are treating their team more like employees. And that scares the shit out of me because business law and the IRS really has stringent rules around how to classify someone. And you're at risk for a lawsuit to be transparent. Um, So I think I see some people doing the contractor model really well, and that's great. And it's a short term, you know, almost doing a getting people ready to launch out on their own. Like a stepping stone. It's a stepping stone. Exactly. But for people who want to build a clinic and have people work for them long-term and take care of them and get to help their clinicians grow, you know, a lot of my team is going on three years at my practice, which is insane. And I think part of that is it's been able to support their whole livelihood. You know, they haven't felt like they had to move on because they didn't get enough from me. That's the biggest decision people have to make is, am I going fully two feet in to the employment model and I'm going to figure it out even if I'm scared? 
Or do I want to dabble a little bit and have one contractor and see what it feels like? And I do see people do both. Um, What I will say is people tend to either stop having contractors one day if they're like, man, I don't want to manage people. Or they tend to have an oh shit moment where they're like, I should have been doing employment model and now I have to switch and now my team's confused and it's okay. And I've supported people through that and they get to the other side, but it, it can be tough. Because it's confusing. There's a misconception that if you're a contractor, you make more money because it seems like that on paper, but employees are actually way more expensive. Um, And the compensation tends to be really similar after taxes. Then once you make that decision on the logistics, you really want to have some kind of timeline. And this is hard too, because you don't know what you don't know. You don't know how long it takes to hire then onboard and then get your person fully through to seeing their first client. What I've found is eight to 10 weeks is a pretty good time to go from the interview process to an offer letter, to getting insurance contracts in, to doing an official onboarding and training, and then for somebody seeing their first client. And then the third thing is really figuring out how you're going to do this as a full-time clinician at your own practice. And again, I'm going to put a little asterisk because I know a lot of people will have like a handful of clients and have always wanted to just have a group. And that's awesome. But what tends to be more common is, I know for me, I was seeing 30 people a week whenever I hired my first clinician. And I was like, oh shit. Um, First of all, 30 is ridiculous and hard and like burnout central. Um, 10 out of 10 do not recommend. And I quickly learned that my caseload needed to come down as I'm helping this person. So figuring out how you're going to balance your time and people do tend to have to like really stretch their edges in the beginning where they're still seeing 20 to 30 a week while they're onboarding somebody, but very quickly trickling it down as they can, as they're replacing their revenue is the best, the best thing that can be done. I'll just add in to that. Well, I'll add in my assumption and then I'd love for you to challenge it if you don't agree with it. The time whenever you are still seeing a full caseload or pretty close to full caseload and bringing someone on, this is the time that it makes a lot of sense to batch work things. Having to switch back and forth because this is kind of the first taste of like wearing a bunch of different hats. Or adding on a couple more hats to what you're already wearing. And so really looking at your schedule and not, you know, 10 a.m. you see a client, 11 a.m. you're doing onboarding paperwork, noon you're seeing a client, one you're seeing a client, two you're going back to figuring out how to hire someone. Like that is a fast track to burnout. And so the logistics of this too is also evaluating your schedule to make sure that you're setting aside dedicated time to setting up systems growing the practice, marketing, all of those like logistical pieces of bringing someone on. When you said the example of doing a client, then onboarding work, and then another client, I had a visceral reaction in my gut. Like, <laughs> um, yes. You know, it's interesting though, Morgan is I didn't do any of that. I was a total mm-hmm. chaotic mess. I'm sure. Right. Uh, you know, that's four years ago at this point when I onboarded my first employee and Wow. I thought this week, I was like, I literally have a degree in group practice. Um, Anytime something happens (laughs) for four years, I'm like, I have a degree in this. 
I was very messy and that totally burned me out. But what I do see people do now, which is great, is they'll kind of tend to put their clients on specific days, Mm -hmm. you know, like move all their clients to three to four days a week, depending on where they're at with their caseload and then have one full day. Admin day. The admin businessy stuff, which we see in solo practice too. And so I think that's the best best way to do it. Totally agree. I did not have the terminology to do batch work (laughs) whenever I was hiring my first person, but I definitely think if you can have an afternoon or a morning at minimum where you have a block of time where you're working on the group practice stuff, I think that is fantastic. Those are all the logistics, not all, (laughs) those are the top logistical pieces of preparing yourself as the owner. What about the emotional preparation. How do you, how would you recommend someone emotionally prepare themselves as an owner to expand from solo to group practice? Mm. When I think of the word emotional in this context, I think a lot of people maybe focus on the fears and anxieties because that's usually what's like on the forefront. But I actually think it's really important to think about mindset and stepping into a different role and really owning, like being that boss and that leader. So in order to be able to do that, you first have to kind of going back to managing your time and things is like, consider your capacity. And when I think about capacity, there's three pieces of resources, right? Time, energy, and finances. That's another important one. So what is your capacity for bringing on this person? What is your responsibility for caring for them? What boundaries do you have to put in place? Like, how are you going to work on being a boss and being available, but not being a micromanager or like a helicopter boss? And (laughs) what are your limitations? Because you can't just be available all the time for whatever somebody needs, but it's really important to also not let somebody just like free fall. And so- I really think the emotional and the logistical go together because the emotional really informs the logistical. So when we're talking about what is your capacity, what is your capacity for the hiring process? Do you actually need two to three months to onboard somebody fully? Um, Is it summer and you're really wanting to have a slower pace? So maybe you're not even hiring until the fall or for next year. Like all of these things should be considered into your fullest capacity because what I want people to look out for is making sure they're not coming from a place of burnout and desperation to get out of the client work and hiring somebody so they can do less. I think that there maybe is a little bit of that in all of us, but if you're in such a desperate place of, oh my God, I need a break. And that's what actually feels good in your body. I do not recommend filling that gap of, let me just have somebody else bring in the revenue because it's a lot more work than just being that simple. And it's really honoring what your capacity is. Energy and time are the hardest ones, I think, especially coming out of the pandemic. And then finances, it's very expensive to bring on somebody to your practice and you can keep the cost relatively low. But I also think of the group practice owner's time, right? If you're seeing less clients, that's costing you money. Um, If you're paying somebody to do insurance contracts for you, that's costing you money. And so thinking about where your business is at, do you have a little bit of a nest egg at minimum? Do you have a business line of credit just in case something were to happen? All of those things also elicit emotion. And so, you know, there's kind of a little crossover with logistics there, but 
it's real. And then, like I said, shifting that mindset from being a clinician and knowing that you are now stepping into supervisor, leader, boss. I have a lot of thoughts about becoming a group practice owner and doing supervision. I did that for a very long time. And as we've been able to grow, I have other people supervising my team at the group now, but that is something that you will be for a while. And I'm going to, I'm going to put a pin in, in the concept of group practice ownership versus supervisor of clinical work, because we should have a whole episode on that, but you will be doing that for a while, having many hats and you have to let go a little bit of identity of quote unquote, just clinician. Uh, and maybe one day you won't be a clinician anymore. And so mindset is huge. And it's, that's like the ongoing work and emotionally preparing yourself to be responsible for somebody for taking them under your wing and knowing that you will financially be responsible for them in some ways while having boundaries. Like you can't solely be like, I'm going to save you and give you more money because of X, Y, and Z. Like, but there's a very real, if someone's working for you and they're exchanging their work and time and labor for finances. And then there's also you're responsible for somebody's livelihood and helping them do meaningful work and supporting them when it's hard. And so settling in to like being prepared to help somebody through that. And that might be where you're making sure you're upping your own supervision. You're getting business coaching. You are having a mentor of some sort. You're in a peer supportive area. Like you taking somebody under your wing probably means you should be under somebody else's wing too. I love all of those. There's so much, so much thought that goes into making this decision to bring someone on that. I think sometimes there is like the, the hard eye emoji of like, yeah, someone else to take referrals that I'm having to send out and make more money for the practice. And I can pass things off to them. And then you're sitting here, like listing out the things that are required as or like, I guess not technically required, but like the things that are going to keep people around. That's the kicker. It's, with you as a business owner. Group practice is not hard to build, y'all. It is. You can put all the systems in place. You can do the logistics. The sustaining and maintaining your team, that's the work. And that's where it's a different mindset, the interconnectedness, the ecosystem. Like you really want to make sure that that is good and healthy and company culture. And that's really where leadership comes in. Okay. Yes. This is where I wanted. This is my, my last question for you. I wanted to end things. How do you know if you are meant to be a leader? Like, I think that that feels like the hardest part for me of like, logistically business-wise, I know I could hire someone and like set up systems and all of that, but it is more of that emotional, like someone is relying on me that like, freaks me out a little bit more. And I know you just got your master's in leadership. So uh, guru, tell us, how do you know if you're meant to be a leader? Uh, well, I have to say that leadership is such a beautiful thing to get to be part of. Um, something I've been mulling over lately is I don't know if someone is just a leader. Like I think we're always leading and following and I was really reminded of that going to the workshop this week and being led through something. I was like, Ooh, I like being a follower. I like having somebody to mentor and inspire and give me a different perspective. And so I think in a traditional sense, we don't fully understand the extent of leadership, 
we assume our boss is our leader and, or we have this person who is more senior and has been doing this and they tell me what to do. Like that's our quote unquote basic definition of leadership when it's so not that I could go on a whole rant about what leadership is, but it's really leadership is about inspiring, making decisions and helping others grow. And I think that can be done you know, in a traditional sense, leader to follower. I also think that having people who traditionally follow lead the leader sometimes is really beneficial. And so I think you get to experience all of that in a group practice. Like it's very give and take and people move through different, different hierarchies, but in order to become a leader, one, I just first want to give permission to anybody who doesn't want to. And that sounds like a nightmare mad respect. I don't think you should be a leader if you don't want to. And I know some people get pushed into positions where they're asked to be a supervisor and they're like, ah, I'm not ready for that. Or they're asked if they want a different role. And, you know, in our capitalistic hierarchical society, we think we should take that because that's the next thing. And I actually don't think that's true at all. So I have mad respect for people who don't want to be the leader. But when it comes to if someone is meant to be a leader, I don't, I don't know if that's the question necessarily. It's more of if you want to, right. It's like, is someone meant to have a group practice? Mm, I don't know, but do you want to, even in saying that there are some different traits and things that maybe inform if somebody would be a good leader, starting with like, if they want to great, if they want to, there is a little bit of nature versus nurture. You know, some people are naturally more open and curious and, can work a room. And I think folks like that can jump into leadership and really run with it. And there's a lot of desire from them. Um, But there's also the nurture piece where if someone really wants to be a leader and it scares the shit out of them and, but it sounds good to them too. Like there's a lot of aspects that they're really drawn to. Those are skills that can be taught. I mean, leadership comes down to excellent communication and decision-making. So those are skills that are very concrete and can be learned. When it comes to the context of a group practice, you know, there's different types of leadership. Like there could be a team lead, there could be a supervisor, there's the owner, maybe you're all of them for a period of time. And then maybe you expand your team where you have different levels of leadership. Um, Or maybe there's somebody who's a clinician at your group practice and they are skilled in ARFID. And so they're the leader of that realm because people go to them and want to consult. Like it it really can look so different in different capacities, but there is a piece in the context of group practice that is informed by you being established as a clinician too. Like if you are a fresh grad out of school, you may have desires to be a leader, but I actually don't know if you would be successful supervising somebody in the work you haven't done enough of yet. And so there is a time and experience and a perspective part of being a leader that's very important as you move into this role. And again, it all depends like somebody who's coming out of business school and wants to be a group practice owner, if they hire like supervisors to supervise the clinical work, and those are the leaders that are in the day-to-day management and the person's running the business, like that's a different kind of leadership. But if you are somebody who plans to be the group practice owner and supervisor, both roles, many hats at once in the beginning, which is very normal, being really established as a clinician in order to lead another clinician is very important. Totally agree with all of that. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing insight into all of this. I love this. I know you do. I know you do. I love learning from you, even though I, I mean, even, even listening to you talk about this, like not as someone who works as a clinician wanting to grow group practice, but potentially would want to continue to expand my team of designers and things like that. These are all still applicable questions to ask. I think it's like anyone wanting to expand their team, whether it's clinicians, yoga practice, therapists, like dietitian, there's so many different options. And like all of these questions and things to think through are important for whatever scope you were trying to grow. Yes, exactly. And that's where, you know, we're putting it in the context of group practice, but this can be even taken out of the clinician space and it could be taken in other industries. And that's what, that's an appreciation I really gained from doing my master's in organizational leadership is all my classmates, none of them were clinicians. And so just getting to see other industries and seeing the same issues around communication, um, conflict, people's own stuff coming into the workplace, lack of accountability on all sides, like that's universal human stuff. And so, yes. Um, One last thing I wanted to say before we wrap up too, is there's a lot of being the leader that's put on a pedestal of that's the thing I should do. That's the person who's awesome. But when you're thinking about a team and building a team, if you didn't have followers or people working with you, you're not a leader. And so everybody's equal. Somebody has to be the leader, but that's not the most important role. Thanks for listening to the Weight Inclusive Innovators podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to our podcast to add us to your queue every week. Please leave us a rating and review and share with a friend to help us reach more weight inclusive business owners who could use support and pep talks. And if you are ready for a week dedicated to working on your business from one of my favorite places in the whole entire world, be sure to sign up to go to Mexico City with us. We'll see you next week. Bye.